0: Whether it is a western, horror or musical, all genre pictures function in the same way. Coming from the French word meaning type or class, genre operates through familiarity. So all superheroes have alter egos, traumatic backstories and share a fetish for spandex. Likewise, in fantasy adventures, an evil wizard utters an incantation damning the universe to darkness and then a kind wizard speaks of a prophecy to the chosen one and everyone has names with very strange spelling. In other words, it is through the repetition of certain tropes that convention is established and genre is formed. I'm impressed with my attorney Bernie I'm impressed with his
1: influential friends
0: While we are told that in real life familiarity breeds contempt, in drama familiarity results in expectation. And while in real life we want our expectations to be met, for cinema audiences expectation must be surpassed. The audience demands to be surprised. And that surprise is delivered through variation, where the convention is altered, tweaked, or simply broken. Considering genre is a French word, it is only appropriate that they also have a specific word for the altering, tweaking, and breaking. And it is bricolage. Although not derived from it, bricolage is not entirely separate from another French word, collage. The technique of assembling different forms to create a new single one. Collage comes from the French verb coller, meaning to glue, and it is the gluing together of repetition and variation that provides genre with its crucial balance. So, what are the conventions and variations of the legal drama? Well, at some point you can rest assured that someone somewhere is going to be accused of something. That person will deny it, lawyers will be hired, and judges will preside. Which means we will see the inside of a courtroom, where surprising testimonies will be delivered, and someone will say,
1: You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I am instructing my client not to answer that question on the grounds of self-incrimination. The facts in this case are simple. we we'll to distract that from the record, Your Honour, It's speculation. Move to reconsider. You're out of order. You're out of order trial is a travesty. It's a travesty of a mockery, of a sham, of a mockery, of a travesty, of two mockeries, of a sham. Rejection.
0: Frequently employed as those clichés are, it is always the variations that have greater impact, because they expand the genre's boundaries and thus deepen and enrich the story's meaning. So much so that a great genre picture is about something else entirely. In fact, precisely because Groundhog Day spends all of its time contrasting the repetition with the variation, it is not just a rom-com, but is really about spiritual awakening. Raging Bull? Sure, it tells the story of a champion boxer, but really it's about the fight against your own self-destruction. 2001? It's not just about a malfunctioning computer, it's about... Actually, I've no idea what it's about.
1: Gianna, please, huh? Oh, Sorry.
0: Obviously, the legal drama predicates the importance of justice, and it does so by collapsing the conflict down to two people, the prosecutor and the accused. So, a variation on that formula would shift the focus away from those individuals, move out of the courtroom, and ask us to weigh up the evidence.
1: You've listened to a long and complex case, Murder in the First Degree. A premeditated murder is the most serious charge tried in our criminal courts, listen to the testimony, you've had the law read to you and interpreted it as it applies in this case, it's now your duty to sit down and try and separate the facts from the fancy. One man is dead, another man's life is at stake. If there's a reasonable doubt in your minds as to the guilt of the accused, a reasonable doubt, then you must bring me a verdict of not guilty. Now, if, however, there's no reasonable doubt, then you must, in good conscience, find the accused guilty. However you decide, your verdict must be unanimous. In the event that you find the accused guilty, the bench will not entertain a recommendation for mercy. The death sentence is mandatory in this case. You're faced with a grave responsibility, thank you, gentlemen.
0: Twelve Angry Men runs 90 minutes, yet spends barely 90 seconds in the actual courtroom. And in that brief time, we are afforded just one brief look at the accused, and instead are shoveled a perfunctory speech by an obviously disinterested judge. After that, we're stuck in the jury room as a dozen men deliberate over the evidence. The script was adapted by Reginald Rose from his own celebrated teleplay, and gripping though it is, the film's director, Sidney Lumet, admitted it was a romantic vision of the judiciary system. Romanticism is not a genre, but rather a movement that historically has championed liberal and radical thought. In other words, Romanticism is predicated on change, and so what Rose was doing was changing the point of legal argument. What Rose's drama says is that when a case goes to trial, the most important arguments are presented not by the defence, nor by the prosecution, but by the jury. And if the jury does not argue, justice is not served. In Twelve Angry Men, it was not a young man who was on trial, but the dozen men. And underlying that, it is we who witness and judge their dedication to upholding the law.
1: He's a, a wild, angry kid, that's all he's ever been. And you know why? Because he's been hit on the head by somebody once a day, every day.
0: He's had a, he's
1: had a pretty miserable 18 years. I, I just think we owe him a few words, that's all. I don't mind telling you this, mister. We don't owe him a thing. He got a fair trial, didn't he? What do you think that trial caused? He's lucky he got it.
0: Rose was inspired to write the teleplay from his own experience while serving on a jury in a manslaughter case. And it was another playwright's experience that inspired one of the landmark plays in American theatre, Arthur Miller's The Crucible. By the time Miller came to pen the play, he was already one of America's most celebrated writers, having won the Pulitzer Prize in 1947 for Death of a Salesman. However, he was at the time a member of the Communist Party and had written for it under the pseudonym of Matt Wayne. As his friends and colleagues were hauled before the HUAC hearings, Miller watched in disgust at the manner in which they were hounded and imprisoned on hearsay, rumour and, as far as Miller was concerned, betrayal. One of his closest collaborators, Elia Kazan, named names before the committee and it was this event that compelled Miller into action. Using the Salem witch trials of 1692 as a setting for his drama, Miller evokes the time when America was a theocratic society, the church and state were one, and austere puritanism held the people in its grip. What sets Miller's work apart from almost every other courtroom drama is the way he makes us understand that the accused are not the ones on trial, but the court's legitimacy itself.
1: Mr. Hawthorne, I am innocent to a witch. I know not what a witch is.
0: If you know not what a witch is,
1: how do you know you are not
0: one? <laughs> the casting in The Crucible is very deliberate. A few years earlier, Daniel Day-Lewis had portrayed Jerry Conlon in Jim Sheridan's powerful In the Name of the Father, the true story of how the Guilford Four and the Maguire Seven were framed and convicted of bombings carried out by the IRA terrorist organisation. Likewise, in The Crucible, Paul Schofield played the case's presiding judge, Deputy Governor Thomas Danforth. As written by Miller, Danforth is a man of profound conceit, who uses his position as a cloak behind which he can hide his lack of thought. He can only survive so long as that cloak keeps hiding his emptiness, and so his primary loyalty is not to the law, or the community, but to the cloak.
1: I must tell you, Thomas, I had not expected so much of our evidence to come from children. Had you? I had not. But you cannot doubt the children are painfully attacked. No, oh, I see that plainly. Recall the Gospel, Samuel. From the mouths of babes shall come the truth.
0: Such legal perfidy is a far cry from Scofield's Oscar-winning performance in Fred Cinnamon's exemplary film, adapted by Robert Bolt from his own celebrated play, A Man for All Seasons. Henry VIII wants to divorce and remarry, and standing in his way is Sir Thomas More, England's Lord Chancellor.
1: Arrest him. For what? He's dangerous! Libel. he's a spy! Father, that man's bad! There's no law against that! There is God's law! Then God can arrest him! While you talk, he's gone! And go he should if he were the devil himself until he broke the law! So, now you'd give the devil benefit of law! Yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Yes! I'd cut down every law in England to do that! Oh? And when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper, the laws all being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast. Man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes. I'd give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake.
0: As the drama unfolds and Sir Thomas finds himself called before the court, he insists that a person is defined not by their actions, but by their conscience. In other words, Sir Thomas is being persecuted because of his own sense of self. He is a man of adamantine principles, and while all actions have consequences, what supersedes Sir Thomas's actions is thought. So, while Shakespeare had his Danish prince believe that conscience doth make cowards of us all, Sir Thomas's conscience is measured by courage. He will not be swayed by public opinion, nor will he ever blindly obey orders.
1: If Ernst Janning is to be found guilty, certain implications must arise. A judge does not make the laws, he carries out the laws of his country. The statement, my country, right or wrong, was expressed by a great American patriot. It is no less true for a German patriot. Should Ernst Janning have carried out the laws of his country? Or should he have refused to carry them out and become a traitor? This is the crux of the issue at the bottom of this trial.
0: That was Stanley Kramer's Judgment at Nuremberg from 1961, which won Abbey Mann an Oscar for adapting his own teleplay, originally broadcast in 1959. Yet, while the genre offers many gripping dramas, there really are precious few groundbreaking and landmark examples. Of the ones already listed, these also demand to be mentioned. Carl Dreyer's Austere, The Passion of Joan of Arc. The ending to Fritz Lang's M, where a frightening kangaroo court, tries child-killer Hans Beckert. Akira Kurosawa's profound Rashomon. Robert Mulligan's meticulous adaptation of Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel To Kill a Mockingbird. Sidney Lumet's The Verdict, superbly adapted by David Mamet from Barry Reid's novel, and Oliver Stone's blistering JFK. The one thing they all bear out is our struggle for clarity. Villains are never clouded by concepts such as decency or morality. So it is the heroes who struggle with their conscience, and it is through their struggle that we see just how heavy a burden justice is. But by upholding it, We are stronger people for it.